Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And we are back again this week to share with you an interview that I did last week with Dr. Michael Owens. He is a candidate for Georgia's 13th congressional district, and he has launched a primary challenge against the Democrat who currently holds that seat, Representative David Scott. In this conversation, we talked about Dr. Owens' views on the issues, including the importance of veterans' issues, but he is also the most prominent Democratic candidate who is currently launching a challenge to a member of his own party. He was endorsed this week by Brand New Congress, a political group supporting candidates who back Medicare for All, criminal justice reforms, and getting money out of politics. So we asked Michael how he approaches that challenge and what motivated him to jump into this race. Just a note for our listeners before we begin, we talked with Michael before all of the news about President Trump's efforts to pressure Ukraine into an investigation of Joe Biden's son and Nancy Pelosi's announcement of an impeachment inquiry in the House. We talked with him before all of that news happened. I'm sure that we'll get another chance to talk with Michael again and get his views on those issues. So without further ado, I will turn it over to my conversation with Dr. Michael Owens, candidate for Congress in Georgia's 13th Congressional District. Dr. Owens, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Kyle. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, so for our listeners who may not have had a chance to hear you on Political Rewind or or may not know much about you, could you tell our listeners just a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure, happy to. Yeah, um, um, and, and thanks for the opportunity, first and foremost, to be on Peach Pod. I'm, I'm, I'm a listener as well and, and happy to be on here, but... Uh, yeah, so a lot of people do know me from from my time I spent on Political Rewind on GPB and on uh, on you know Political Breakfast with Dennis O'Hare as well, and uh, just the time that I get to spend engaging with uh, with people across the state on Democratic and and Republican issues and things that's important to us all. But uh, you know, prior to that, I I actually started you know over the last three years as the chair of the Democratic Party in Cobb County where, um, you know, I, I really kind of dug my heels in, worked really hard, uh, you know, coupled with grassroots efforts. And, you know, when I took that on, I said my, my goal was to build the largest county committee in the state and uh, and to flip seats up and down the ballot. And, you know, two years later, I'm, I was happy to kind of resign from that, doing just that. In Cobb County, of all places in the state of Georgia, we had the largest, cal- the largest county uh, committee in terms of uh, active members, we were able to, uh, you know, flip seats at this, you know, school uh, from school board to state house, to state senate, uh, all the way up to congressional district. Where in 2018, we sent Beth one for Congress. So, you know, I'm just happy to do my work as a member of the Democratic Party in Georgia, but also as an avid member of kind of the grassroots community. Before, long before I became a member of uh, the, the Cobb Dems, I was working, you know, on the ground. Uh, with democratic efforts, uh, lots lots of times over in South Cobb, um, where I started just a, a basic advocacy and, and educational group to bring people that normally aren't involved in politics at all and give them an opportunity to be able to meet their elected officials. You know, all too often it's unfortunate, but um, a lot of people don't even know who their state rep is or state senator or school board member. So, you know, I took a lot of time before I got an elected role. Uh, with a role that I was doing in a nonpartisan, I mean, sorry, a well, nonpartisan in a in a non uh, uh, non elected role, doing just that, connecting people with government and explaining about what laws and things go on. But you know, my my background is um, is really varied. You know, I, I grew up as a kid in rural North Carolina. From uh, matter of fact, my my dad and, and his dad before him 
Uh, we're both from Columbus, Georgia. So, um, you know, I, I spent my, my summers living in Atlanta and in Columbus growing up. So a lot of time throughout the 13th district, you know, my grandparents lived down in Riverdale, uh, which is in Clayton County. And, uh, you know, my parents ultimately resettled here in Cobb County back uh, right after I got out of high school. And so growing up in rural North Carolina, finding my way out of that um, was to join the Marine Corps. So I went to the Marine Corps. I joined the Marine Corps when I was 17 years old, right on the heels of the Persian Gulf War. Actually, the first Gulf War was going on. Uh, and basically following suit from them, right? My dad was a was a Marine who fought in Korea in the end of uh, an Indochina War. My grandfather before him was uh, was a Navy man who was in the South Pacific. He was in Guam. He was uh, he was in the Navy. So kind of followed in their footsteps a bit. But um, you know, made my way out. I, I got my undergrad from North Carolina State University, Go Aggies, um, a historic black university in Greensboro, North Carolina. Uh, then went on to Georgia Tech, uh, where I got my business degree. Followed up at Cal University, where um, I got a doctorate in international business and. Um, and as, as that wasn't enough school, I kind of wrapped things up with a with a short stint at Harvard. I was a part of their uh, initial, the first class, as a matter of fact, of their Emerging Leaders Program at uh, Kennedy School of Government. And then uh, last year, I got the fantastic opportunity to go to the um, United States Army War College and take part in their National Security Seminar, which is an incredible program, which really, for me, brought home a lot of things I work on within cybersecurity and national security. Uh, and put that in the concept of, you know, our national interests and a, a truly national way to, to issues that we're facing today with, uh, you know, room full of, of generals and, and lieutenant colonels and colonels uh, across every branch of the military to really, you know, work on those challenges, as again, that we have today and how we can kind of break through them at a national level. So, you know, the, the background I have, you know, is uh, I'm really proud of the work that I've done. I always say I'm never going back to school, but I got to be careful that because as soon as I say that, I wind up, you know, enrolling somewhere. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not going to say that right now. But as of now, I'm, I'm not. You know, I, I've spent uh, the last 15 years when I haven't been enrolled somewhere working, you know, in a background of, of cybersecurity, you know, international data privacy, and how that kind of dovetails into geopolitical issues and national security issues. Um, so it's you know it's very important to me as part of who I am. Uh, as you've heard on public rerun before, they've talked a lot about my my background, my work in cybersecurity, and, and I don't you know personally I don't think there's haven't been a more uh, critical time in, in our nation's history that we have people that have strong backgrounds in in cybersecurity and national security, um, you know, on the hill and advocating for us primarily as Democrats, right? I think it's it's vitally important that uh, that those on the left have a voice in the space. And understand that there are those of us that do work in national security issues that are that are proud to be Democrats to stand up for our values and our principles. Yeah, so your your candidacy is somewhat unique, particularly among candidates that we've talked to on Peach Pod and that you're primarying a sitting Democrat. And I want to get to that in a minute, but I want to first bounce off of something that you said in your in your introduction here. You're a you're a third generation military veteran and we frequently hear from the current administration they're always stating their love for love and respect for veterans. But I'm not sure that the policies actually match up always in that. What is the state of policies right now that impact veterans? And what is an agenda that supports veterans look like in your view in Congress? You know, um, it's a multifaceted thing. And you are right. I mean, we, we hear that a lot 
from the Republican Party in general, right? And, and I, I, it upsets me and it bothers me a good bit as a, um, and not only, not only as a Democrat, right, but as a veteran where, you know, the Republican Party has basically co-opted um, what patriotism means, right? And for some reason, this whole God, country, flag uh, ethos is, is basically, you know, tied to the fact that you have to be a Republican. Look, there's, there's not a single week that goes by on the campaign trail that I don't get an, an email, a message, or a call um, from someone that goes, hey, I love your policies. You know, I appreciate your service, but how how in the world can you be, you know, a true patriot and be in the Democratic Party, right? Um, and that's just unfortunate because I think that, um, uh, you know, that there are a long list of, of, of proud Democrats that serve this country and, will, and, and do, doing so right now and will continue to. But I'll tell you this. I served under Democrats and Republicans, and when I was in the Marine Corps, you know, our job was to accomplish our mission and to make sure we brought our, our men and women, our friends, back home with us. And it, and it has been in, in this administration where things have, have changed quite quite a bit because, you know, as he continues, you know, the president may say he loves the veterans so much, um, but when it comes time to truly support veterans and what's going on, um, you hear a little bit of talk, right, when some things happen, but... Uh, you know, I think very soon afterwards, you know, you get radio silence. And it's unfortunate. You know, you remember back, Kyle, it wasn't too long ago we had a veteran who literally set himself on fire in a parking lot, right, because of issues that he had. And and it's, it's unfortunate, right? I know in Cobb County here we had a, a veteran that unfortunately um, was involved in a hostage situation where he had an issue where he was he was arguing with the VA overpaid. Right. Um, that was that was garnished out of his out of his check. Um, you know, these are all what seems to be isolated incidents, but we know we know they're not. We know every single one of them are, are interrelated. We know we hear the talk about veteran suicide numbers. Um, but at the end of the day, it's, it's as simple as this. We have to have an administration. We have to have a Congress uh, that's that deals with veterans and issues from day one. And what I mean from day one, I mean, is the day you know, that they are discharged. And that work actually needs to start before they actually even get discharged. So, you know, in, in the public sector, we, we talk about wraparound services, right, in the social sector a lot. And, and it has to be the same way when we're talking about our, our veterans, right? Um, you know, any veteran that's, that, that's, that's, uh, that gets discharged from, a, from a, having a medical issue, they shouldn't have to get out and then go through rounds uh, after they get out to qualify. I mean, it's common sense. If you get discharged because of a, because of a medical situation, then obviously you should have services and benefits to the VA, right? Um, but I think holistically, look, the VA, I have to be careful here because I want to make sure that we give the VA their props as well. The VA is the largest government-owned mil- uh, military um, healthcare provider that's out there. Um, and I think by and large, uh, the people that work for the VA do a good job and they try really hard. But then we hear about situations like we did where you found this gentleman that had died, um, but his family came to see him and, and he was bedridden and covered in ants and they had a you know infestation. And the bottom line is we, just, we have to do better, right? We absolutely have to be better. Um, you know, this veteran homelessness, I, I've talked about that a lot over the years. Um, it, it's just something that you know, being in this country, it's bad if we have any better and we have any homelessness at all. Um, but someone who's been willing to give their life for this country, there's got to be programs that we can put in place. So what do we need to do? Number one, we have to do a better job at listening to veterans. 
Um, we have to do a better job at connecting what's going on in the veteran communities, um, and not just the you know VFW and American Legion, but with veterans that aren't even affiliated with those organizations. Let's face it, veterans are affiliated with a lot of those organizations. Those are the ones that are, that are doing quite well. Those are the ones that are doing good. We gotta have outreach to to veterans who are not connected to those sort service oriented veteran type groups and be able be able to get out and connect with them. Um, we still need more money to come and go into our veteran services um, to make sure that we're not just uh, you know putting those money into you know more of those services that we have in the past. But we've got to have ways to get out there. Look, when I was in college, I worked at the vet center. <laughs> that was my work study. Um, so I've, I've been close to not only the military side, but also the veteran side for a long time. And, you know, I think from a, from a legislative standpoint, um, we've got to have a lot less pageantry and, and ceremonious support. And we've got to get people out and money committed to people who are actually living, breathing veteran services is on the ground every single day. So let's shift here to climate change. A report last year from the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change said the world may have as little as 12 years to begin to reach emissions limits goals to stave off the worst effects of climate change. Recently, congressional Democrats signed on to a non-binding Green New Deal resolution. How do you view the Green New Deal? What does that term Green New Deal mean to you? And do you support it or something like it? So it's a good question because it's, it's one of those things I think that gets thrown around a lot. And, and I don't think, you know, a lot of people don't have a really good grasp on, on the Green New Deal. And so, yeah, I, I do support the Green, Green New Deal as a, a great collection of ideas um, and legislation that we need to have to really move this country, country forward uh, and, and the world forward, for that matter. And you're right. I mean, you know, we have to listen to scientists, you know, geological, geological studies, you know, atmospheric studies, um, everything that's going on that tells us from, from science science, evidence-based facts um, that, yeah, we have to do something. Um, we know right now, I mean, uh, the, you know, the, the, as I say, the earth is literally on fire, right? You know, we, we have polar glacial, you know, ice caps that are, that are literally melting, seas are rising. You know, July was the hottest month on record that we've ever had. Um, you know, all, all of these things are, are leading to the fact that we, you know, humans are having an impact on this country. Do I, do I support the Green New Deal? Yes, because I believe in science and evidence-based uh, reporting around, around factual information and the fact that we have to do something. So, you know, the Green New Deal, as it relates to addressing this, this climate crisis that we have going on, but it also does several other things too. It also addresses the economic inequality that we have, um, which harkens all the way back to you know economic and social reforms that you know was undertaken by by uh, FDR, right, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, um, in response to the uh, to the Great Depression. You know, and and what we have now is we have uh, several things that are happening. We have you know as I mentioned before this uh, this income economic inequality where. You know, the, the, the old ad is that the rich keep getting richer and the poor keep getting poorer. Um, and, and that's, that's actually true. We know that, right? We talk about, you know, the, 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 the tax break for the rich and what's happening. But, you know, one of the, one of the key things that continues to happen is that as corporations continue to make more and more money, profits are happening. CFOs, CEOs, COOs, CIOs continue to make more and more money. The people that are washing the dishes and sweeping the floors and cleaning the windows are not, right? And and minimum wage, uh, you know, there's continued discussions about it. Yes, we as a Democratic House just kind of 
passed, you know, one measure to, to do that. Um, but we have to have we have to have economic reform, and Green New Deal does speak to that. It also talks about as we start to have this transition and deal with climate change, we're also looking at how we're bringing in new jobs, new 21st century jobs, um, jobs around solar, right? So there are jobs that will wind up ultimately being phased out um, as we start becoming less and less dependent on fossil fuels. But there's going to be new green jobs that's going to take the place of those. You know, there's going to be jobs for solar technicians. There's going to be, you know, jobs, uh, you know, all across the country that we're going to be able to get new public works in. Uh, so we're going to be able to do that. So, you know, the Green New Deal as a whole is really about reforming the ideas that we have around, you know, our our construct around, you know, how we're economically going to go forward, socially how we're going to go forward, you know, when it comes to um, bringing in new jobs and making sure that jobs we do have, you know, there's there's uh, adequate pay that goes along with those jobs. Uh, and so the Green New Deal is just part of that, right? It's, it's ushering in what I think um, is the next era of not only making sure we continue to have clean water and clean air, but also making sure that we're safeguarding our workers to make sure that they're going to have uh, an equitable, just way of being able to make a living. So another element of this conversation around the Green New Deal is the impact of pollution on frontline communities. And I've really been struck by the reaction, particularly in Cobb County, by residents there to uh, this situation that was recently uncovered by Georgia Health News, where there is a medical sterilization facility that is emitting a chemical called ethylene oxide into the air. And there were findings by the EPA um, and the Georgia Environmental Protection Division showing that this chemical was uh, presented an elevated risk uh, for causing cancer. And so you had these hearings, uh, these public events where people from Cobb County really packed these public events. Um, when you when you think about this conversation about the Green New Deal and about particularly this lens on frontline communities, how would the policies that you support as a member of Congress, how would they address those concerns and, and the input of people living in frontline communities that are particularly impacted by by pollution and environmental degradation. Yeah, I'm happy you brought that up. Um, you know, from from day one, one of the one of, literally one of the first things I talked about in this campaign um, was not only climate change, but the interrelationship between climate change and, and environmental justice, right? Because um, a, a lot of times, I get over it gets overlooked. It's not seen as um, something relevant that uh, that is really impactful when actually it is. You know, when I talk about July being the hottest record, uh, hottest month on record, um, you know, we have to understand what that means. Sure, there's a there's a, a scientific aspect to that, but there's also a, a real aspect to it, which means people die, right? And and when when people die, normally because of heat related uh, causes, more times than not, they're going to be the most vulnerable among us, and there's also going to be minorities. And those of those of us of the, the working class and lower socioeconomic scale, and, and that's just a fact, right? It, it happens time and time again. If you look at what happens in, you know, with with earthquakes, if you look at what happens with Katrina, right? That was a perfect example uh, of how you can you can tie that directly to economic justice. Um, but you also, you know, I tie this to looking at what's happening. You mentioned uh, the the plant, the plant, uh, the name of sterogenics. Um, what's happening? And, and, and here's, here's what's happening in a lot of aspects. We have to ensure that we have the regulations in place 
for these type of companies that they're dealing with these very, very dangerous chemical compounds, you know, um, that they're leach- leaching into the earth or leaching into the air or leaching into the Chattahoochee. Um, you know, we have to make sure that we are cognizantly putting controls in place. And, you know, it, it's, it's almost laughable um, to the extent when this administration that came in having their you know, lack of um, respect, if you will. You know, it's, 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 a, it's an administration that came in and basically said they wanted to get rid of the EPA. And, and here we are, front and center, right here in Cobb County, in the middle of the 13th district, or, or I'm sorry, right outside, the surgery spot technically is right outside of the 13th, but we're definitely within uh, the potential area, or the real area um, of, of elevated threats due to the toxins. But what I'm happy about is what you're seeing, you made reference to it, is that we have, you know, hundreds of people, thousands of people that are engaged and that are concerned about it. I was one of the first people, actually, that uh, that that rose some, raised some concern about this. Because when I saw it, I said, wait a minute. Wow, this is, number one, this is close to home. Number two, Sterigenics is a company that's already had um, issues in the past. So, you know, if you go back to look at their history back in Illinois, um, they've been a troubled company. And part of the problem is what we see is that when companies have the ability to self-report based on, you know, regulations that are put in place, what I've seen time and time again is corporate profits are going to win out, right? Nothing, nothing corporate social responsibility. Corporate profits is what's going to win out. You know, cutting corners, uh, making sure they do the least amount possible to stay, you know, maybe within regulation, maybe maybe without. But the fact, the fact of the line is when you are not having to report to a body um, or when you're having to self-report, um, we have a situation like this where, where, unfortunately, they have not been doing what they need to do. And I'm happy we had a response from our state representatives and our state senators to, uh, to jump right on top of this, right? Eric Allen, uh, State Representative Eric Allen and, and State Senator Jen Jordan took a leadership role in this and was able to kind of go out and, and talk about it. But look, you know, there's a lot of us and a lot of communities see this all the time. Um, because it's uh, not only here in the state of Georgia, you can look in other parts throughout the throughout the country, areas where you have people of lower socioeconomic scale usually wind up having chemical plants, usually wind up having landfills, and it's unfortunate, and that that's that's kind of what happens. But but I don't want you know this to be simply about you know minorities or or those people that are of a certain economic class. We've got to make sure we do better overall to rid this country once and for all as much as we possibly can of practices of uh, of compounds of companies that are dealing in these very very dangerous lines of business because look there are, you know the the ethylene oxide we know kills people we know that <clears throat> there are other methodologies that are out there there's other innovative techniques um that we can utilize not only in sterilizing medical equipment, um, but, you know, in many other parts of industry as well, um, you know, and, and not only that area, you can go to the area of energy, right? Looking for areas around clean energy. So, you know, the whole, and yes, that feeds into the Green New Deal and, um, you know, pollution as a whole, air quality, drinkable water. I'm proud to have, have, have brought this up as a, as a major issue, and it made it a, one of the initial areas of concern in my campaign because I know that as I go through the district, that there are people that are struggling with this. Um, there are people that, you know, are struck with asthma, with um, all types of disorders, and a lot of it is due to the environment. So we've got to do better on that front. 
as a congressman, um, there's no doubt. You know, I've already said I support the Green New Deal. Um, I'll be more than happy to work with Democrats and Republicans as it as it relates to being able to reduce, uh, you know, carbon emissions in this country, reduce waste, to clean up our water, uh, to make sure our air is drinkable for us, for our children, and and for our grandchildren ahead of us. So another big issue, particularly for progressives right now, is the issue of health care. And Democrats nationally are currently debating whether what a health care agenda should be for the next Democratic president. And this debate seems to follow along the lines of whether folks believe that there should be a role for private insurance coverage. So if you're elected to the House, would you like to see that chamber pursue legislation that prohibits private companies from selling health insurance? Or would you prefer reforms to the existing system where most people continue to get their insurance through either their employer or the ACA marketplaces or, or Medicare and Medicaid? Yeah, this is definitely a hot topic. There's a lot of discussion around it. Um, again, I think there is a, there's, there's a Medicaid for, Medicare for All bill, um, but there's, there's multiple other bills that are out there as well. But Medicare for All is, is, is really taking the lead on this. Um, I've said I support Medicare for All. You know, but the, the bottom line is this. We live in the most prosperous uh, most developed country in the world, there's absolutely no reason why we should have people that flat out do not have health care. There's no reason why people should literally be dying or going bankrupt or, quite frankly, working into their 70s and 80s uh, just so they can have insurance. This is literally a travesty. I think it's a black eye on America when it comes to the entire world, right? So um, first and foremost, we have to do something to make sure that every single American has health care coverage. So with that said, no, I don't think our current uh, system goes far enough. Look, I was a champion of the ACA from the very beginning, and I'm happy we got it. Um, that was probably one of, the, one of the early differentiators between myself and, and the, the incumbent. I think we'll probably get that in a little bit. But, you know, the ACA was a great step forward, um, but we've got to do more. We've got to go beyond that. We've got to go to the point where we make sure – from from a, a, a public option that every single person in this country has health care and health care is a right. Now, how do we go about doing that? Um, you know, there's, again, there's lots of discussions about it, um, but I think one area is pretty clear, right? We offer every single American in this country health care. We provide a way for them to have it. Uh, we provide a, a government platform in which that can happen. I think a lot of people misunderstand that a bit because, number one, Medicare for all doesn't mean we take the current Medicare system and expand it to every, everyone. That's not what the bill actually says. Number two, there's not going to be death camps or death panels or any of that crazy wackiness that goes on. No one will that has health care will lose health care. That, uh, that's, a, that's a talking point. That's a Republican talking point that, that bothered me because it started to creep into our own Democratic lexicon a little bit. Um, and that could not be more untrue. The fact of the matter is there will be people under Medicare for All that will lose their health care plan, okay? Um, but I don't think there's many people out there that, that, quite frankly, give a crap about the health care plan, right? I don't care if it's it, what health care company it comes from. It's not the health care plan that people care about. It's health care coverage and health care solutions. The fact that when I'm sick, I can go to a doctor. I can go to you know a pharmacy get the medication I need. I can go to a chiropractor if I have a need. Um, it's the actual healthcare itself. It's not the healthcare plan. So this idea that people are going to lose healthcare is a fallacy, right? The fact of the matter is people aren't going to lose healthcare as long as you can still go see a doctor 
you know, that, that's, that's where the rubber meets the road. So that's what I support. I support a, a plan and policy that's going to allow every single American that when they get sick, when they're feeling ill, they do not have to go to the hospital, right? They can go to their primary care physician. They can go to a clinic. They can go to a dentist. They can go to an eye doctor, and they can get the health care they need right then and there. They're not going to be forced into a situation where they either don't have health care and, and they sit at home or struggle through work until it becomes so bad to where you know it's, it's incurable or actually winds up being much more expensive. Or the other thing, when people don't have health care, they wind up going to a hospital, right? And when they go to a hospital, we all know that that emergency care medicine is the most expensive form of health care that we have. So that places more of a burden on our hospitals and our systems when dealing with people that are insured. We already know the discussion we've had through the past several years about um, hospitals that's literally been driven out of business, right? Unable to keep up for that. That is largely due to uninsured people that need health care. Right, so they go to a hospital. Quite frankly, when they when they shouldn't have to go to a hospital, they should be able to go to a primary care provider or to a minute clinic down the street. But unfortunately, because they don't have health care, um, that's where they're forced into. And and this is a critical area, primarily for me and for my campaign. I think for the country, but it hits home within the 13th district. Um, you know, because we're 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 very we're very district. Um, but I can tell you there's parts of our district that lead the state, right? That it's right up there at the top of the state when it comes to the number of people that are uninsured. So um, you know, one of my one of my top things has to be as a congressman to get in and make sure the people in this district that are suffering that they have more than a once a year health care that they have to look forward to, that they can actually have health care every single day and whenever they need it. So we've talked with several Democrats running for Congress next cycle, but you're the first candidate that we've spoken with who's primarying a sitting member from your own party. So can you describe for us what went into the decision to launch a primary challenge and what differences do you as a self-identified progressive candidate have with a blue dog Democrat like David Scott? Well, you know, I think the fact of me running um, first and foremost was a decision that I did not take lightly at all. Right. Um, As you know, I, I was elected two times to serve as the chairman of the Cobb County Democratic Committee you know, as I mentioned before, growing the largest county committee in the state by being able to reach out and connect with Democrats across the spectrum uh, to get on board, to, to, to get involved. You know, one of the early people, I think, to really work to combine the grassroots with the, uh, you know, more established party dim environment to, to bring everybody to the table. But the fact of the matter is, you know, throughout the course of continuing to do that, um, you know, I realize that that we continue to miss a lot of the core things that we need to have when it comes to representation within our district. You know, um, so again, it, it, it was it was a decision that was I, I didn't take lightly. Um, you know, I, I'm on the state committee. I've been on the state committee for about five years with the Democratic Party of Georgia. You know, so this this whole idea is I'm not an insurgent candidate. I'm not someone who who just decided to get in and 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 run a primary race against an established. Democrat because it was just something to do. You know, I'm very much a Democrat through and through. I'm I'm a member of the state party, but at the same time, I know what our platform of the Democratic Party is. I know what our bylaws are. I know what Democrats stand for. You know, I, I used to say every single month in our Democratic meetings was that I I stand by our Democratic values, our our policies, and our ideals, and I'll I'll I will stand against those against anyone. 
and I'll put, you know, where I stand those against anyone. So, you know, in doing so, it has to be looking at what our current elected officials are. Being a Democrat and being a proud Democrat also means being proud about those Democrats that are currently in office right now. So when I look across the spectrum and I look at, you know, my congressman, it has to be someone that I'm aligned with that's aligned with the party. And I think that are enabling us to do several things. Number one is to represent the people that you are elected to represent. As a member of the Democratic Party, as a member of my community, Congressman Scott, someone I see very far, few, and in between, actually in the district, connecting with people in the district, talking to local officials, um, engaging with local community leaders and what's going on, um, and primarily just being a voice. I, I can't recall the last time you know, we had a local congressional level town hall in our district that was sponsored by the congressman. Um, you know, so we, we give a lot of flack to Republicans across the state um, for not giving town halls. And I look here in my own district and we don't have congressional level town halls that's being done. And I mean, I'm not talking about in the past year, I'm talking about, you know, successive years, almost up to a decade. And I, you know, so I, I look at what's happening locally. I look at what's happening, you know, at, at a state level as we work, you know, our fingers to the, to the bone, trying to get more Democrats elected, trying to build our bench, trying to make sure we're, we're supporting both our grassroots and our party to make sure we're uplifting. And, you know, when we have Democrats have a chance to get elected, that we're getting involved with them, right? We're supporting them. We're, you know, I was, I was on the road, you know, I felt like a candidate myself throughout the last couple of cycles, as much as I've been on the road throughout the 13th district, um, throughout the Metro Atlanta, and, and even further out, you know, I've, I've been in, you know, Chatham County, Qualcomm County, you know, Whitfield County. I've been across this whole state rallying Democrats to get out to the polls, rallying Democrats to, you know, show up to volunteer to knock on doors and make phone calls. And, and I can tell you all that time I was out there doing that, not a single time that I passed my congressman out doing those things, trying to make sure that we won elections. And look, there's been some really hard elections throughout the 13th district that some that we've won, some that we've lost. Um, and that's going to happen in politics. But, you know, my feeling is that we need to have uh, our congressman front and center. Look, when, when we're out and about and we're doing these things, I, I've seen Congressman John Lewis out and about. I've seen Congressman Hank Johnson. You know, I've seen Congresswoman Lucy McBath. And, and, it, and it's invigorating to volunteers and to people that want to get engaged and involved to see their congressperson out there leading the way, actually engaging, supporting and rallying people. So, you know, we're talking about within the district from that standpoint, from a party standpoint, you know, that's been that um, thing that's been absent from, from what we had, you know, and then I look at the policies, you know, um, flat out, you know, I, I, you know, it's infallible to me that we had a congressman that um, has unfortunately decided to, su to support um, you know, Republicans in the past. I don't think I'm not bringing up anything that's new here. It's uh, it, it's common knowledge. It was been reported in the paper that Congressman Scott has supported Republicans multiple times in the past. And I know, as an elected member of the party and as a state committee member, you know that that's not allowed in our bylaws, right? Whether it's a the county level, the state level, or national level. So, you know, that to me is is highly problematic. When you know, you, we literally have thousands of Dems out across the state that's working hard trying to turn the state blue. And, uh, you know, we have a, a sitting congressman that unfortunately multiple times now has decided to re support support Republicans. So, you know, from a party perspective, and, and you're clearly, you know, brought this up within a partisan party uh, lens, you know, again, 
someone who served as a as a county chairman, someone who serves as a state committee member. Part of what we say is we have to make sure we have Democrats that are supporting our party platform and that's representing Democrats on the ground um, in their elective office, and in this case, in the Washington D.C. as well. And, and at the end of the day, Kyle, that that just has not been happening. And I think the people of the 13th district, uh, I think Democrats across the state deserve to have a Democrat that they know that that has their back, that's going to be out there supporting them, that's going to be helping to build a bench, that's going to be active and engaged in the community, um, and and you know can work on bipartisan efforts when there's time to. But you know, there's nothing about being bipartisan that means you know you know, donating to Republicans. That definitely is not what that means. So, um, you know, again, it was, it was a long, um, lot of thought went into it, talking to a lot of people throughout the party that I respect and that I, that I, you know, that I trust about whether to do this. And at the end of the day, I just felt it was the best thing for the people of the district and the best thing for, uh, for the democratic party as a whole, give people an option. You know, at the end of the day, look, Kyle, this is, you know, the democratic process, democracy is not democracy without choice, right? Um, and so when we have a sitting congressman, you know, a person who's been the only congressman for this district ever, when you have someone who's been in elected office since 1974, you have to at some point in time give people a choice, right? That is at the heart of, of democracy, is at the heart of our democratic party. Um, and I feel good and I'm proud of the fact that I'm offering people um, next May a choice about who they'd like to have with their next congressman. And I can tell you, people across the district in every single county um, are excited about the opportunity to have a choice um, and to go out and cast a ballot for someone who's been engaged and been involved um, and that's worked on local, national, international efforts, um, and at the same time, been able to uphold the, the, the party and what the ideals and the standards mean for that. So last year, Congressman Scott supported a sweeping rollback of the Dodd-Frank financial reforms put into place in the wake of the Great Recession. I think you and I both know that Georgia was uniquely hard hit uh, in the burst of the real estate bubble and, and in the Great Recession that followed that. And in that legislation was a provision that critics say watered down data reporting requirements that researchers used to identify possible racial discrimination in mortgage lending. What did you make mm-hmm. of Congressman Scott's vote on that bill? And how would your priorities around economic security and economic regulation differ than the ones that he showed in that vote? Yeah, you know, that, that's been one of the most troubling aspects um, when I look at um, the the voting record and just the overall, uh, I think, disconnection between what's going on right now and the actual need of what we have on the ground um, within within Georgia and particularly within the 13th Congressional District. You know, it was unfortunately it wasn't very surprising to me. Congressman Scott is, you know, has been widely reported as being someone who is very friendly to Wall Street. Um, you know, his, his his donor record kind of clearly shows that um, he is very heavily supported by big banks and 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 the financial industry. So there's no surprise there, but but it's unfortunate because those of us that are in the district um, that was very hard hit. Look, at one point in time, you know, there were certain areas within our district where you know home values um, were were literally underwater, right? Up seventy percent of of homes, and so. The measures that were put in place basically were put in place to make sure, you know, that, that we can stop mortgage companies from predatory lending. We can make sure that, you know, we do stop them from taking advantage of consumers. We can make sure that when they uh, involve themselves in these risky, you know, credit default swaps, 
uh, and all these other things that these fancy programs that they go about, which, which is nothing more than just enhancing their risk, right? So they can basically make more money. You know, at, at the end of the day, we have to hold banks accountable. And we have to make sure that as they're taking those risks, that we make sure that they have provisions in place to where if their risk outstrips their uh, their their tolerance at some point and they get over their skis and they get in trouble, that they have enough reserves basically where they can bail themselves out, right? That, that it's not going to come back where, you know, the, it's, it's a potential to where, you know, as we had before in the Great Recession where we literally have to enact – and, and kind of pull out all stops to make sure that uh, that these banks don't fail. Look, we've got to do more to make sure that we are, you know, promoting community banking, right? Um, as you know, it's no secret I work in the fintech space. There's a lot of provisions now what's happening to where we can use innovation. We can get closer to the people who actually need banking services. You know, it, it troubles me, it bothers me to see um, not only big banks, and we know the fact that, you know, these banks continue to make more and more profits, but, you know, the, the risky practices they've taken in the past, it's just really got to stop. So, you know, anything that's really got to do with rolling back those restrictions that are in plenty of places is troubling. It wasn't too long ago, as a matter of fact, that Congressman Scott was one of the signers um, on a letter that was drafted, right? Again, asking for banks to have more reprieve because, you know, for some reason they're saying this is this is stopping their ability to be able to to make money. Uh, it doesn't seem to re- be reflective in their in their 10Ks or their annual statements, right? These banks are doing absolutely fine. Um, the people who are hurting, you know, are the actual people on the ground. The, the people who literally work all week for a paycheck, and then because they're under bank, they didn't have to turn around and go to a check cashing place, right, um, to, to have more money taken out of their check just to be able to cash it. So we need to focus on more innovative ideas, more small business making. And that doesn't mean, you know, the, the big banks in the world just find ways to offer services to smaller banks. It means investing in community banking. It means ways to look at having banking services that are cheaper for those people um, who can't qualify for traditional banking. Having non-traditional banking services that are not, um, that, that aren't predatory in nature, right? Um, you know, the, the idea that, that Congressman Scott would somehow um, show support to payday lending um, corporations and, you know, think that that's somehow some valid way to uh, provide a, a, a stopgap or some sort of temporary services. It's not, right? I mean, payday lenders do nothing more than wrap people that are already in a dire situation into a, a, a spiraling downward, you know, uh, uh, um, situation where they're going to call paying more exorbitant fees and more exorbitant fees. So they go from, you know, a payday lending uh, situation to a pawn shop to a title loan lending, right? Um, and and it, it becomes, you know, an inescapable conundrum that they get caught in. So, you know, we've got to focus on on modern day solutions. We've got to look at, at cheaper, more innovative solutions that's going to put people um, more in command of the, the money that they make, looking at more alternative solutions where people can get micro loans. So you're not going to a bank, you're just a number one application, right? You're we have opportunities where people can get um, smaller loans. So again, so I was talking to a lady the other day and she said, you know, a micro loan would have meant the world to me when, when I was starting my own small business. Going to a large business when I have had problems with my credit before, you know, um, you know, when I've had situations where, yeah, I've gone through the, the recession that we had and I've got a foreclosure on my credit and that lasts for seven years and doing so I've been really hard to rebuild my credit. You know, we've, we've got to have more of those measures in place, I think, to where um, people that need that help, people that are on the ground are going to be able to 
to, to find it. And that's what, you know, that's what I want to do. In March, The Intercept reported that the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, the DCCC, was instituting a new policy blacklisting political strategists and vendors that worked with candidates primarying incumbent Democrats. How has that policy impacted the development of your campaign? And what does that policy say to you about the party's internal dynamics as we've seen uh, more Democrats uh, consider primary challenges against sitting members? Sure. So uh, I, I I remember that as clear as day. You know, the the chair of the DCCC and 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 others, you know, came out and said, "Hey, here's here's this blacklist. We want to." Um, and, and I'll tell you quite frankly, I mean, to me, it's one of the most you know un- undemocratic things that can be done. You know, again, we talk a lot about making sure that at the end of the day that uh, our voters choose our elected officials and that our elected officials do not choose our voters, right? And, and that's a that is what's happening. You know, people a lot of times get 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 it misunderstood about what the DCCC is. Um, and the DCCC, in, in, in all clarity, they're not the D, not the DNC, and they're they're not the DPG, um, Democratic Party of Georgia, or the Democrat National Committee. Um, but but they are obviously you know aligned and affiliated. The problem is that the DCCC is is made up of of all incumbent members of Congress. So, um, you know, my issue with that is you start to play the system where protecting incumbent at all costs. And that has been very problematic. Um, and I think now, sure, it's, it's become an issue, mainly because you've had people like, you know, um, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez. But it goes back further than that, right? I, and I think the Democratic committee, the incumbents, um, they are scared. Right. They, they realize that there's an awakening of people that's happened. There's a there's an influx of people throughout the country that's now gotten involved in electoral politics that's never gotten involved before. And when you do so, the old system just doesn't work anymore. But like I said before, look, I, I know the Democratic Party. I know the GCCC. It wasn't a surprise to me um, when it came out. Um but at the same time, it, it wasn't impactful because look, there, there are Democrats across the country that know what other Democratic records are. Congressman Scott has a record that doesn't exactly line up with, with the party and definitely doesn't line up with a lot of people that has, has joined the party lately, that's gotten involved and that's really swelled the numbers and the ranks of the party in Democratic committees across the state. Um, I was at the last DPG elections, you know, when, when we were electing uh, Democratic leaders from across the state, and I can tell you, a lot of those those party officials now that got have gotten elected, you know, they aren't about getting along and just playing along with a system that's broken. They're about getting involved, getting engaged, and, and fixing this broken system, and making sure that everyone has a vote, everyone votes counts, making sure that there is a a a record that people can be proud of holding Democrats accountable up and down the ballot. And that's really what this is about. So, you know, it was unfortunate that DCCC tried to decide to make this. Um, it's unfortunate for me because, yeah, I'm, I'm the, really the only candidate that's kind of caught into this, this race being, um, you know, running against an incumbent Democrat. But um, at the same time, Kyle, this has not been a death sentence for my race. If anything, at some point in time, Democrats from across the state, Democrats from across the country, and definitely within the district, has looked at this and and you know has questioned the Democratic Party, has questioned the DCCC as why they would take this on. But I always, you know, make the point to say that this is not a DPG 
uh, statement, right, or, or not a stance that the DPG has taken. Because I think it's, it's important to know that when things come out like this, that if there's if there's blame to be made, we make sure that uh, we do that. When it came out, I made I, I talked to our DPG chairwoman Nakima uh, Williams, and you know she was she was very clear with me as well. Look, Michael, that you know the Democratic Party of Georgia didn't have anything to do with this. Um, this is not something that that you know that that the DPG has signed on to. Um, and I'm, and I'm, I'm happy about that, right? Because I know there's members, there's Democratic Party um, state committee members, there's there's members in in every Democratic committee throughout throughout the the district that are supporting my campaign. I'm happy for it. I got one more policy question for you. So Georgia has been the epicenter for state level criminal justice reforms in recent years. But you're the first candidate that I've seen mention restorative justice on your priorities page. Can you describe what the principles of restorative justice mean to you and how a criminal justice system based on these principles would differ from the system we have today? Yeah, um, you know, talking about criminal justice and, and, and social justice reform, it had to be something that I included in my my platform because it's something I care deeply about. And um, quite frankly, I, I've seen the ravaging effects um, of, of many of our failures in, in criminal justice and social justice um, that we have in this country. So it's vital to me that we have to do something about it. First and foremost, you know, it, you, you see my platform page, you see the discussion I talk about, you know, ending the war on drugs and, you know, uh, removing marijuana as a schedule one substance. Um, and, and restorative justice goes right along with those because, you know, for the last 25 years, we've taken an entire generation of people, mainly black and brown men, and we've locked them up, right? We've, we've locked them up. We've thrown away the key. We've, we've saddled them, you know, with, uh, with debt around, you know, uh, you can, you can go to the cash bail system. You talk about, um, probation that people have had to go under for years. Um, and ultimately, literally incarcerating people um, for these nonviolent offenses, um, misdemeanors and felonies. And then, you know, um, the restorative piece has to come in because we can't talk about correcting, you know, injustices of the past and not address what we have to do go, going forward to, to right those wrongs. We have put far too many people in jail because they look like someone else or because of a false uh, witness, uh, or because crack came along with um, a much more harsher sentence than cocaine did. And we've done that. And we've done that throughout, I know, throughout the 13th district. We've done it throughout Georgia. We've done it throughout this entire country. And, and what have we done? What, what's on the, in the heels of that? You know, the young men and women get out. Hopefully they're still young, but, but they have a, 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 a cross to carry at that point in time, right? They have a scarlet letter, and, and, you know, which, which normally comes with a felony. So you now have an entire class of people who are unable to get professional licenses, who are unable to get decent jobs, who are unable to qualify for certain things, who are unable to go into the military. Um, they, they've been reduced down to third and fourth class level citizens um, who are unable to, to make a living in society today. And then we wonder why the level of recidivism is so high, right? Um, so as we talk about ending the war on drugs, as we again, as we talk about decriminalizing uh, uh, marijuana, restorative justice has to come along with that. It has to be a part of that. Um, sentencing reform and realignment has to be a part of that as well. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier cash bill. Uh, we have to stop this system where you know the amount of money you have in the bank determines how long you have to stay in jail. Right? There, there is you know that that's absurd. So. You know, we have 
done some of these things at a local level. Um, you know, Mayor, Mayor of Kishwas Bottoms has this talk about this a lot. I've been proud um, and to hear this talk about even at a local level throughout the 13th. So, um, you know, candidates that are running for mayor, uh, candidates that are running for city council, I'm hearing these same type of discussions now being talked about on a local level as well, which lets me know that I'm exactly right when I talk about things on the platform because it's not only issues that we talk about on, on on a national level. These are things that hit home. These are you know these are things that literally take fathers out of homes, away from their wives, away from their girlfriends, away from their children. Um, so you know we have to talk about these things at every single level of government. So it can't just be something we talk about you know only in you know super progressive areas or only in you know at, at, at a national level. These have to be things we talk about every single day. You know, and I include fair housing in with that, right? Because um, that's been an issue from you know going all the way back from you know the 1960s with with redlining all the way up to the day when where you know in my home in Cobb County. You know, we have some of the harshest conditions in the state when it comes to affordable housing. So, you know, to me, all of these things are kind of, you know, equally dispersed and, you know, weave a, a, a fabric uh, of issues that we have to address. So there's not one silver bullet to how we can fix these issues, but we have to understand how they're interrelated. We have to understand how they intersect and we have to understand that we have to have the courage to address them. Um, and it may not be the most, um, you know, it may not be the most appealing topic to everyone, but we have to have these discussions, you know I mean? And, and some of them, some of them are quite like they're hard discussions and people that don't want to have them because they may run afoul of some people in some way. Um, but, but to me, that's what being a congressman is, right? You have to listen to the people, understand the challenges, um, and then look for ways to turn them into opportunities. Talk to the people within the district, find out where the people are through town halls, through um, through integrative activities that's going on um, at every level of government, and then have the courage to stand up and 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 sponsor bills and co-sponsor bills that that are representative of the challenges that people are having in your district. So if you have a district, as I was going back earlier, saying um, in Clayton County, for example, uh, which is squarely within my district, where where David Scott actually has an office, yet they have some of the highest uninsured uninsured rates in the state, right? You absolutely have to have the courage to talk about those issues. You have to be able to, you know, be able to come up with solutions and champion solutions that are out there on the table um, and, and not, you know, simply rely on, you know, things that you've done year after year after year. Again, kind of talking about the health care, you know, I, I, I thank Congressman Scott for having the health care, right? And, and for making health care an issue and that people should get checked because far too often, you know, in our communities, People aren't going to the doctor to get checked um, when they should. But the underlying fact of that is this. It's not just people, you know, want to be some level of machismo or whatever that they don't want to go to the doctor. You know, many times, you know, generationally now, people have grown accustomed to not having insurance, right? Or even when they have insurance, that the the premiums for those are prohibitive for them, them to go. So they build up this 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 mantra that, oh, I'm not going to go to the doctor. I'm not going to do this. So, you know, so, you know, I thank Congressman Scott. I commend him, you know, for having, you know, these health fairs. But at the same time, you know, 16, 17 years of having health fairs and, and, you know, one of the most democratic counties in the district has some of the highest levels of uninsured rate. I'm sorry, that is not a solution. It's great for a one day a year event. It's fantastic. 
but it's not the kind of solutions that we need that we need to have a congressman that's going to champion. So I'm going to go out there and I'm going to champion those efforts. You know, I'm going to champion healthcare. I'm going to work to make sure that you know we we raise minimum wage throughout you know this country. Um, you know, I'm going to work to make sure that we're talking about you know restorative justice. We're working on ending affordable, um, ending the war on drugs. You know, I'm going to make sure that we go back to environmental hazards, you know, within our low uh, income communities, and our minorities and make sure we, we do that. You know, these are these are things that I see every day in our district. These are gaps um, and, and they're not new. Right. They're festering. They've been issues. They've been problems. But at the same time, Kyle, we have opportunities. I don't want it to be all downtrodden. Right. We have a lot of great opportunities that I see, you know, in the state of Georgia. You know, I work in cybersecurity. Cybersecurity is one of the growing fastest industries in the state. You know, we have um, the cybersecurity center down the road in in Augusta. We have the FinTech corridor, you know, in, in Alpharetta, you know, going up Bankhead, going up, or Buckhead, going up north. You know, um, further south to us, um, we have, you know, these highly skilled automotive manufacturing plants that are going up, you know, but, but here within the 13th, you know, where we're at, you know, we're in the back door of the world's busiest airport. We're the confluence of, you know, Interstate 20, 285, 75, and 85. Um, you know, we have so many good things going for us in the 13th, but we don't have a champion. We don't have an advocate. We don't have someone who's out there, you know, working to bring these these great jobs I'm seeing going on in other districts. We don't have anyone who's actually advocating bringing those jobs into our district. So we're not, you know, we're not able to to keep people at home. Um, so they're forced to get out on the road even more often. Um, so making traffic even worse throughout large parts of our district. You know, we don't have the type of educational apparatuses that I would like to see within our district. So I want to make sure that we're bringing satellite campuses for some of our best universities in the state, bring them into the 13th, right? We, you know, for a district that covers six counties, uh, you know, there's there's not a lot of educational opportunities that we have. So I want to talk to Georgia Tech and Emory and, and KSU and Georgia State, um, you know, and, and find out if we could bring satellite campuses into the district. So those students um, that, that can't afford to go off to school or that for whatever reason need to stay home, uh, you know, taking care of mom and dad, that, that they can actually do that and still go on and get an education. Um, you know, and lastly, I want to make sure that, um, you know, right now we only have to have two congressional districts, uh, two congressional offices within our district. But if you look at our district on the map, if you look at the 13th district, um, you know, we're arguably, you know, the most gerrymandered district in the state. So which means um, that it's, you know, you couple that with the transportation issues that I mentioned earlier, um, we have a lot of... Uh, of challenges. So I want to, right now we only have two congressional district offices. One is up in the Northern area up in Smyrna and the other is down in Jonesboro. You know, I would like to look at having potentially three offices and moving them around so that, you know, people in the district don't have to drive an hour to get to their congressional office, right? To make sure that there are people um, that can get to our office within a decent drive on their way home from work. They can drop by if they need to swing, swing by on the lunch break. You know, hopefully they'll have an opportunity that they could be able to get there. And lastly, I want to make sure that we're hiring people to work in those offices that are from our district. You know, right now, one thing that I'm proud about is that every single person on the Owens for Congress staff literally uh, lives in our district, right? Whether that's Clayton County or, or Fayette County, Henry County, Clayton County, Douglas County, Fulton County, every single person in our campaign is actually from the district. They make up a part of that fabric I was talking about earlier. And I think that's vitally important. 
um, you know, that I, that I start that now because, you know, all I'm doing is planting the seed so that when I am congressman, we are going to continue to do that. And we're going to continue to employ people that are within the district. We're going to look for ideas within our district. We're going to bolster uh, companies and entrepreneurs and small business owners that are within the district so they can thrive and do better things, you know, bring more educational opportunities within the district. Um, and lastly, make sure that every single person in the district has health care and make sure they have uh, good jobs to make sure they can pay for the rising cost of housing within our district. Alrighty. Well, Dr. Owens, uh, thank you so much for joining the podcast and, and for getting into the weeds with us on all of these issues. If people want to learn more about your campaign for Congress, how could they do that? Yes, yeah, very easy. Um, first and foremost, they can go to our website, www.owensforcongress, O-W-E-N-S-F-O-R-C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S. That's owensforcongress.com. You can also find us on uh, on social media, on Facebook, um, and on Twitter. It's Owens um, for Georgia 13. But yeah, uh, contact us. We're very active. Um, we have uh, people across the district that are getting engaged. More than happy to have people come out volunteer and uh, find out more about what our campaign's about. All right. Well, Dr. Michael Owens is a candidate for Georgia's 13th congressional district. He is launching a primary challenge against David Scott. Dr. Owens, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Thank you, Kyle. It's been a pleasure to have you, and I hope to be on again soon. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.